This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. Need to get some holiday shopping done and want to give something entertaining and educational? Art Curious, stories of the unexpected, slightly odd, and strangely wonderful in art history has you covered. Art Curious, the book, is an ideal holiday present for the art newbie and art lover alike, as well as the perfect paperback for anyone who loves a good and weird story, like whether a British painter was one of the most notorious serial killers in history, how two women in the late 19th and early 20th centuries may have beaten Vasily Kandinsky to the punch when it comes to being deemed the world's first totally abstract artists, and whether Renaissance artists really stole corpses to inspire their masterworks. Get Art Curious now wherever you buy your books, audiobooks, and ebooks. Find out all the details at our website, artcuriousbook.com. The Art Curious podcast is primarily sponsored by AnchorLite. For more information, please visit anchorlightraleigh.com. Have you ever looked at a picture postcard of a destination and wondered if a place could actually be as beautiful in person as it is in the depiction? Geneva, Switzerland is one of those postcard-worthy places that not only meets but exceeds expectations of the beauty advertised. Surrounded by a landscape of massive, snow-capped mountains reflected on a serene, glassy lake, grazing cattle with oversized bells around their necks, and quaint shops lined up on cobblestone roads, all of it makes you wonder if you've fallen into a fairy tale. But this prosperous and picturesque city also houses a place that starkly contrasts its serene surroundings. Near the banks of Lake Geneva stands the Geneva Free Port, a compound made up of seven unadorned beige warehouses and a large grain silo surrounded by a chain-link fence. This rather boring, unassuming eyesore has been in use as a storage facility for almost 150 years, since 1888, when it was just a mere row of shacks. Since then, however, it has grown tenfold and claims an international elite clientele as its users, who move beyond the chain-link fence and underneath its concrete exterior to house hundreds of billions of dollars' worth of goods, including fine art. The Geneva Freeport is an untaxed territory, a tax haven eternally untouched by otherwise strict financial laws. And for many, it just makes sense because the ultra-wealthy want to save money as much as make money, right? But even in a quiet, low-key institution like the Geneva Free Port, people can get tied up in an international scandal involving, of course, one of the most expensive paintings ever sold. Some people think that visual art is dry, boring, lifeless. But the stories behind those paintings, sculptures, drawings, and photographs are weirder, more outrageous, or more fun than you can imagine. In Season 8, we're going deep on the stories behind the most expensive works ever sold, including this tale about the so-called Bouvier Affair and Mark Rothko's painting, Number 6, Violet, Green, and Red.
This is the Art Curious Podcast. Exploring the unexpected, the slightly odd, and the strangely wonderful in art history. I'm Jennifer Dassel. Mark Rothko's reverent, relaxing, and entrancing color-filled paintings are probably one of the last works of art that you would assume would get caught up in a dirty art world scandal. If you have ever had the privilege of experiencing a Rothko in person, one of my favorite modern artists, by the way, then you would know the soothing and hypnotizing effect that one of his large, color-blocked canvases possesses. Much of the time, a work by this mid-20th century artist is shown in a dimly lit room with benches arranged in front of the canvases. It creates a space that is quiet, contemplative, restful. Although his color choices are occasionally bright, striking, or even discordant, the subtle blend of Rothko's hues captivates and invites the viewers into an almost holy realm. I often feel something akin to a meditative quality when I look at a Mark Rothko painting. So for me, sacred or holy, they're words that just make sense emotionally. And indeed, I am not alone in this idea. In Houston, Texas, Rothko was even commissioned to create works for a chapel that, just like any other religious chapel, is set up with lines of benches as if for worship. But instead of stained glass, icons, or statues of saints or gods, there are instead several large color field paintings. You either love or hate the Rothko Chapel. Guess which side I'm on. For me, these paintings have the power to transport us as viewers into this sacred and elevated realm, to open the mind to the divine. And indeed, this was one of Mark Rothko's main goals, to create a modern vision of the ethereal, to arouse feeling and emotion in the viewer simply by an abstract rendering of color on a canvas. And Rothko's painting, titled Number Six, Violet, Green, and Red, was no exception to this lofty ideal. It depicts exactly what the title describes, which are violet, green, and red fields of color, artfully spaced and blended to create an awe-inspiring piece. But this is no ordinary painting, because this painting would eventually be sold for a record-breaking price of $186 million back in August of 2014. Three colors, one canvas, $186 million. How did this work garner such a huge amount and why? And what is the art world scandal behind it? This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch, find inspiration for your new vibe every day at Saks.com. Before we answer all of these questions, let's get a little bit of background on the artist himself. Mark Rothko was born Marcus Rothkowitz in Latvia, 
then under Russian control, in 1903 to Jewish parents, but grew up with a strained and complex relationship with religion. After his father died when he was very young, young Rothkowitz was heartbroken, and he vowed never to enter a synagogue again. But, as we know now, the spiritual still called to this artist, and it would play a central role in his art career later in life. After his family emigrated from Latvia to Portland, Oregon in 1913, Rothko struggled to find his direction, though he was an excellent student. He first worked at a warehouse under the supervision of his uncle before receiving a scholarship to attend Yale University, where he longed to study both science and the visual arts. But when his scholarship was not renewed the following year, Rothkowitz dropped out. But art still called to him, and he eventually found himself in New York City, where he joined the Art Students League and enrolled at Parsons, the new school of design. It was the Art Students League that made the most impression on the young artist. And it was there that he was instructed by both the abstract artist Arshal Gorky and by the cubist artist Max Weber, a fellow Jew who was part of the French avant-garde art movement. With these artists' influences and keen eye, Rothko began to view art in his own life as a way to feel emotion and to open up the once-closed world of devotion. His thirst for new, expressive art was quenched with the influence of the German Expressionists and the emerging New York art scene. He met artists such as Adolf Gottlieb, Barnett Newman, Joseph Solman, and John Graham, who were all part of a group surrounding the artist Milton Avery. It was Avery who heavily influenced Rothko's own artistic style and who, according to biographer James E.B. Breslin, quote, gave Rothko the idea that the life of a professional artist was a possibility, unquote. With his newfound artistic community connections, he began showing work at various galleries in New York. But these early works bear little resemblance to the works for which he is lauded today. Instead of those famous color-filled paintings, these works were muted, urban, and figural, scenes that emulated more childlike and minimalist styles. It's been noted that during this period, Rothko had begun teaching art to children at the Center Academy Brooklyn Jewish Center, where he remained until 1952. He may have been inspired by the juvenile artwork that his students were producing, possibly adapting his own artistic style to match their simple, natural works. Simultaneously, he was motivated by the New York art scene that was growing up and around the Great Depression, where he joined forces with other progressive New York-based artists like Ilya Bolotowski, Ben Zion, Adolf Gottlieb, Lou Harris, Ralph Rosenberg, and others. Together, they called themselves The Ten, and produced experimental and modern work during an exceptionally difficult time in our nation's history. And it was a stretch of time that remained a difficult one for Rothkowitz personally, too. Like many during the Depression, he struggled to make ends meet. And when World War II dawned, things didn't improve for him either. And in fact, he feared that a tide of anti-Semitism was going to worsen his experiences in the U.S. So this is when Marcus Rothkowitz officially changed his name to Mark Rothko to sound more American. Either it made a huge difference, or perhaps he didn't have to worry so much, because the 1940s actually proved to be a turning point in Rothko's artistic career for the better. It was in the latter part of this decade that he developed what would become known as his color field paintings. To achieve an effect of illuminated color, 
Rothko would stain his canvases by applying thin layers of paint, one on top of the other. These gentle layers could then be seen through one another, creating a sense of depth and luminosity, almost as if the works were lit from deep within. And when produced in a larger format, as many of Rothko's works were, they can arouse those deep emotions in us, the viewers. It's mystifying in so many ways, because these paintings, as we've mentioned, are abstract. They are washes of color, unbeholden to form or narrative. And maybe it is exactly this simplicity that make his works so powerful. They are, as Rothko himself wrote in a letter to the New York Times in 1943, quote, a simple expression of a complex thought, unquote. Rothko was associated closely with the abstract expressionist's ideal that basic shapes and lines and pure colors could evoke intense emotion and feeling. But unlike other abstract expressionists of the time, Rothko did not violently splatter paint onto his canvases. He was no Jackson Pollock. Nor did he carve thick slabs of paint around. He was no Willem de Kooning either. Instead, he was rather quiet, contemplative, and meditative when he would paint, almost as if painting was a spiritual practice for him. And indeed, he also wanted to create a space within his art to allow for the viewer's spiritual edification too. As he once said, quote, the people who weep before my paintings are having the same religious experiences I had when I painted them, unquote. Rothko did not want viewers to interpret his works so much as to experience them. In response to his compositions filled with amorphous shapes and glowing hues, he noted, quote, silence is so accurate, unquote. Fast forwarding a few decades, and silence was not only accurate, but also proved to be destructive in the affairs between Swiss art dealer Yves Bouvier and his Russian oligarch client, Dmitry Rybolovlev. Yves Bouvier was a man who transformed his father's business of art transport at the Geneva Freeport and turned it into an elite hub for storing and shipping artwork. Shipping art is not the most glamorous job in the art supply chain, but it is definitely an incredibly important one. One that not only requires the utmost care and organization, but also the height of discretion. So picture this. You're an art transit agent, and you're privy to sensitive information on a daily basis about what art is being shipped in and out, how much it is insured for, where it's going, and who is potentially acquiring or selling a work. Much of this, naturally, is private information, but its value is understood. Your knowledge, then, makes you a highly important cog in the art machine. And it is here that Bouvier, under his rather unassuming role of art shipper, began to envision bigger and better things for himself. He especially fancied himself to be a burgeoning art dealer. And in 2002, a meeting with a big fish proved to be a most lucrative catch. That's coming up next. Stay with us. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. 
For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Now more than ever, it is important to take time to focus on ourselves. Do something that lifts us up and makes us feel better. And one of my favorite ways to do that is to learn with The Great Courses Plus. You've heard me talk about it time and again, because this isn't just another streaming service. The Great Courses Plus is a credible source of information with thousands of videos covering practically every topic you want to learn about, like how to use mindfulness to manage your stress or deal with anxiety, or how to make your own pasta from scratch from a chef at the Culinary Institute of America. You can even get tips on how to train your dog from a pro instructor or learn techniques to become a better singer. A course that I love that I have recommended time and again is European Art History, taught by William Kloss. Over a series of 48 wonderful in-depth lectures, you get to immerse yourself in everything from Gothic cathedrals to the advent of Cubism. This course has been called Spellbinding and Visually Dazzling. This is one that I am sure will be a hit for listeners of this show. And it's always so easy and accessible with the Great Courses Plus app, so you can watch or listen anytime in the world, anywhere in the world. And now the Great Courses Plus also has gift subscriptions, so it is the perfect present for those hard-to-shop-for people in your life. Go now to my special URL, thegreatcoursesplus.com art. And while you are there, sign up for your own 14-day free trial so you can try it out for yourself. Don't wait. Head over to thegreatcoursesplus.com slash art. There's a world of entertainment options out there. And by that, I mean that there's a lot of compelling international shows that you may be missing out on. So it's time to burst the domestic TV bubble and check out Acorn TV. Acorn TV is a commercial-free streaming service that's rooted in British television. It's home to sophisticated and artful storytelling and top-rated mysteries, addicting dramas, heartfelt comedies, and so much more. And unlike other British streaming services, Acorn TV also has content from Ireland, Canada, Australia, New Zealand, and beyond. So if you are a fan of quirky British comedy, which I totally am, then The Other One is a must-watch. It follows two sisters from very different worlds who have no idea that the other one existed until their father drops dead. I always find something new to watch on Acorn TV because it is just loaded with thousands of hours of binge-worthy content. And you can stream all of your favorites on all of your devices for only $5.99 a month. Right now, I'm especially digging on the show Digging for Britain, a fascinating exploration of archaeological sites throughout the British Isles from prehistory all the way through the modern era. So give the gift of Acorn TV with their Black Friday deal from November 24th through November 30th. You can also buy one annual gift membership and you'll get a second membership for 50% off. Buy as many annual gift memberships as you want and that 50% off still applies. Escape to Britain and beyond without leaving your seat. Try Acorn TV free for 30 days by going to acorn.tv and use my promo code ARTCURIOUS. That's A-C-O-R-N TV, code ARTCURIOUS, to get your first 30 days for free. Be sure to check out their buy one annual gift membership, get one 50% off deal. Acorn.tv slash ARTCURIOUS. 
If you like podcasts like this one, then you enjoy experiencing immersive stories in an audio format. So that's why I'm sure you'll love Kobo audiobooks. Kobo has a huge catalog of audiobooks, including bestsellers and originals across all genres. And with the Kobo Audiobooks subscription, you can enjoy an easy way to save money every single month. After a 30-day free trial, your subscription is only $12.99 per month for one monthly credit, and you can choose an audiobook from Kobo's catalog regardless of its list price, which is a steal considering the fact that some books can cost between $30 to $50, but not with Kobo. You just pay your monthly subscription fee and save, and your audiobook collection is yours forever, even if you cancel. For art curious fans, you can continue exploring and expanding your art knowledge with biographies, memoirs, and nonfiction audiobooks about your favorite artists, architects, and photographers. Discover more about the lives of Van Gogh, Frida Kahlo, and Picasso, among others, through a Kobo audiobook subscription. Remember that by using my special link, you'll get a 30-day free trial, no strings attached, and then pay only a fee of $12.99 a month. To get started, visit Kobo.com slash artcurious. Start listening to Kobo audiobooks today at Kobo.com slash artcurious. Welcome back to Art Curious. Yves Bouvier first became acquainted with the billionaire tycoon Dmitry Rybolovlev after the Russian proved himself to be a bit hapless in terms of his knowledge of the art market and how to manage art transactions. He, at this point, was a burgeoning art collector, and he traveled down to the Geneva Freeport to pick up a Chagall that he had recently purchased and that had arrived via Bouvier's transit organization. Bouvier, obviously more well-versed in art matters than his client, generously offered his advice and expertise. Their camaraderie blossomed, and soon, Bouvier was the sole art dealer for the oligarch. An oligarch who, it must be noted, had millions of dollars in disposable income to invest in art. And so, it began. Bouvier did everything he could to impress his new client by presenting him with the best art on the market and even sponsoring an art show in Moscow, the first of its kind in Russia. Rybolovlev became more well-versed in both art history and in his personal taste in art. And in those first few years, he purchased many works with Bouvier's help, adding pieces to his collection by Gustav Klimt, Amadeo Modigliani, Paul Gauguin, and Pablo Picasso, the star of the second episode of our season. He purchased 28 high-value works between the years of 2008 and 2013 alone. And let's just say that both men were happy. Rybolovlev grew a kick-ass art collection, and Bouvier made a 2% commission on every purchase, which really adds up when each of your sales is in the multi-millions. In the meantime, Bouvier was also able to open more free ports to support his art transport business, establishing outposts in both Singapore and Luxembourg. But something was a little off here. Because Bouvier's 2% commission, while not peanuts by any means, wasn't enough to generate as much income as Bouvier was actually receiving, and neither could his art transport business. But whatever, Rybolovlev was satisfied with his purchases and with that little 2% commission he paid upon every deal. That seemed good enough, at least at the start. But what Rybolovlev didn't know 
was that Bouvier cut out all the middlemen typically engaged in art transactions, especially when it comes to historical, or older, works of art. Bouvier didn't work with lawyers, appraisers, advisors, or insurers, insisting that he managed all aspects of the transaction. While that must have been some kind of reassurance to Rybolovlev at the start, like, wow, this Yves Bouvier guy is a one-stop shop and I love how he is simplifying things for me. What it actually meant was that there were no checks and balances on Bouvier's actions. There was no art appraiser or advisor to alert Rybolovlev to the price range of a potential acquisition. No lawyers to help sign on the dotted line. No one was around to ask if a price was fair or if it even made any sense. And this was the ridiculously easy way that Yves Bouvier was able to exploit his client. Take, for example, one of Bouvier's most audacious sales, the purported Leonardo da Vinci panel Salvatore Mundi, itself the most expensive work ever sold at auction to date. And one that, I must confess, we will not be addressing in this season of the podcast for the very simple reason that I mentioned in our previous episode. It is covered as an entire chapter in my book, Art Curious, Stories of the Unexpected, Slightly Odd, and Strangely Wonderful in Art History, available now. Bouvier originally bought Salvatore Mundi for $75 million and then did the equivalent of house flipping and sold it to Rybolovlev for $127.5 million. So quick math, this made him a $52.5 million profit, definitely far more than a 2% commission. As journalist Agostino Fontevecchia reported in Forbes, Bouvier waved off this markup as part of an array of, quote, administrative fees, unquote, and then further used his offshore companies to disguise his interventions. And apparently it worked. And, at least at the offset, he kept going. On a Klimt painting, Bouvier made a $60 million profit. On a Picasso, $21.5 million. And this trend continued until Bouvier dreamt up some truly sizable dollar signs for yet another work of art. Mark Rothko's number six. Rothko's number six, violet, green, and red, had long been in Bouvier's sights. But the problem was he didn't have access to it. This coveted color field painting was owned by a famed wine-producing French dynasty. Knowing that this masterpiece, one of Rothko's best, was part of this family collection, Bouffier had been secretly cultivating a relationship with them for years by buying their wine and other artworks from their collection, all in hopes of one day acquiring the Rothko. Now, there is nothing wrong with this really, as it is part of donor cultivation for lots of gallerists, museums, and art dealers. But it does show that Bouvier's dogged determination to get access to the Rothko through the family was serious. And in 2014, it finally paid off when the family agreed to part with number six for an astonishing amount of $80 million. Now, for a 20th century painting that wasn't by Andy Warhol or Pablo Picasso, this was big. But what Bouvier did next was even bigger. He, of course, turned around and offered the painting to Dmitry Rybolovlev at a truly jacked-up price of $180 million, more than $100 million over his own purchase price. The gall of this guy, right? 
The only real problem for Bouvier is that this transaction didn't run as seamlessly as either dealer or buyer had originally anticipated or experienced in their previous interactions. First off, Rybolovlev decided that he wanted to sell some of his collection in order to finance this newer, bigger purchase. So he paid Bouvier an upfront sum of $20 million in cash and promised the rest of the money once Bouvier was able to sell Rybolovlev's cast-offs. Now, this proved to be difficult, because Bouvier wasn't actually a successful and acclaimed art dealer outside of Rybolovlev and possibly a few other clients. So he really didn't have the reputation needed to make such huge sales. And then things got worse. Rybolovlev was diagnosed with cancer and put the ongoing Rothko transaction on hold. Now, Rybolovlev eventually recovered, but one can assume that the time that he stepped away from considering the Rothko was one that he spent contemplating it and his connection with Bouvier. He rightly developed a weariness about the authenticity and integrity of his sole art dealer. He discovered, through mutual acquaintances, that a Medigliani that he had purchased from Bouvier had been marked up by $24.5 million. Similarly, when an article in the New York Times celebrated Salvatore Mundi and noted its estimated value as established by appraisers and art historians, Rybolovlev was shocked to realize that he had paid $50 million more million than the work's reported worth. I imagine this is one of those light bulb above the head breaking out into a cold sweat moments. Dmitry Rybolovlev realized that his art dealer was fraudulently costing him millions of dollars per each sale of art, and he was going to do something about it. On January 9, 2015, Rybolovlev's lawyers filed a criminal complaint against Bouvier for fraud, noting that through his multiple transactions with Rybolovlev, Bouvier had amassed more than $40 million through his agreed-upon commission fee but that he had amassed over $1 billion on upcharges and other sneaky fees. But the biggest question wasn't easy to answer. Was this manner of doing business actually illegal? The art market is famously a rather unregulated world that does not have many set rules to live by. Instead, it is set upon the pedestal of support that is comprised of prominent wealth personal connection, and cultural norms, with things like market comparison and accuracy coming in second place. Art dealing has long been called a gentleman's trade, one that is built on clientele trust and support. But Bouvier, it was argued, exploited that trust and support in order to make the most money possible. Many wondered though, was this even really a problem? Yves Bouvier was arrested on February 25, 2015, in the lobby of the Belle Epoque Hotel in Monaco and was taken into custody, but paid his own bail for 10 million euros the next day. Rybolovlev wasn't going to let the matter lie, so he expanded his legal assault, suing Bouvier in Singapore as well as Europe and insisting on freezing all of Bouvier's assets across the globe, including in Paris and Hong Kong. Additional allegations followed that the two Picasso portraits that the dealer had sold to Rybolovlev in 2013 had actually been stolen from the artist's stepdaughter Catherine, casting further suspicion on the dealer's shady ways. 
Eventually, the majority of the pieces from Rybolovlev's collection were handed to the French police, including Rothko's number six, the piece that proved to be the end of the Bouvier-Rybolovlev connection. But the legal actions are still swirling, the investigation is still ongoing, and Bouvier is still not behind bars, save that previous arrest back in 2015. Naturally, he protests and maintains his innocence, telling an author for The New Yorker, Sam Knight, that it was not him, Bouvier, but rather post-Soviet Russian culture that made Rybolovlev paranoid. Tonight, Bouvier stated, quote, If I tricked him, I'm not only the best art dealer in the world, but I'm also a genius. I'm Einstein. Unquote. Okay, pause here for me to do an eye roll. Sam Knight declared that while Bouvier might be able to win in court, he surely would not be able to recover his good name and reputation. Bouvier's response to this declaration, by the way, a simple one. That will be my next challenge, he quipped. Considered one of the biggest art scandals in our contemporary history, the so-called Bouvier affair exemplifies the ugly side of the art market, corrupted by greed, gluttony, and dishonesty. These kind of multi-million dollar dirty art deals starkly contrast with the beauty, integrity, and the creativity of the artworks and the acclaimed artists themselves. And it is even more shocking when something like Mark Rothko's number six, Violet, Green, and Red, is at the center of such a scandal. It was created to be a meditative sanctuary, but it instead has become a line on a long list of investment assets with its unexpectedly sordid provenance overshadowing its amazingness. All of this makes me thankful that though we cannot personally view number six right now, there are still incredible Rothkos out there on view in public collections around the world. There, at least, we are able to enjoy that serenity, that emotion, that feeling that the National Gallery of Art calls a near-mythic power without us having to pay millions of dollars to do so. Coming up next time on Art Curious, it is the work of art by Vincent van Gogh that held the title of the most expensive artwork for decades. And no one is exactly sure where it is. And you do not want to miss it. Thank you for listening to the Art Curious podcast. This episode was written, produced, and narrated by me, Jennifer Dassel, with writing and research help by Jordan McDonough. Our theme music is by Alex Davis at alexdavismusic.com, and our logo is by Dave Rainey at daverainydesign.com. Audio production services are provided by Kabunki, the silliest name in superb podcasts and video. Let them help you too at kabonki.com. The Art Curious Podcast is sponsored primarily by Anchorlight. Anchorlight is a creative space founded with the intent of fostering artists, designers, and craftspeople at varying stages of their development. Home to artist studios, residency opportunities, and exhibition space, Anchorlight encourages mentorship and the cross-pollination of skills among creatives in the triangle. Please visit anchorlightraleigh.com. The Art Curious Podcast is also fiscally sponsored by VAE Raleigh, a 501c3 nonprofit creativity incubator. Want to show your appreciation for Art Curious? Please drop by Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to leave us a five-star review. It helps new listeners discover the show you love, and we give thanks for your loyal and continued support of this program. 
For more details about our show, including the image mentioned on the episode today, please visit our website, artcuriouspodcast.com. We are also on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at ArtCuriousPod. Check back in two weeks as we continue to explore the unexpected, the slightly odd, and the strangely wonderful in the most expensive works ever sold in art history.